seated. Our uh, scripture reading tonight is in Revelation chapter 15, and that will be our text for this evening as well. It's a short chapter, only eight verses. Let's hear the word of God. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. After these things, I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open. And out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, and having their chests girded with golden bands. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. And there ends the reading of God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we are indeed thankful to gather in Your house with Your people tonight and to worship You, the true and living God. Speak to us by Your Word and the power of Your Spirit, for we ask it in the blessed name of Your Son. Amen. Beloved people of God, while I do not believe uh, that history, the history of the world, is cyclical, that is, a a never-ending cycle of cycles, and while I do believe that the history of the world is linear, meaning that it is headed to an end, to a goal, to the telos that God has ordained, I also believe that there are patterns in the history of the world, particularly when it comes to the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I would propose to you that this pattern is seen in what we've already covered so far in the book of the Revelation, and will continue to see as we work our way through. Uh, to the end. Let me just illustrate this. Through the preaching of the Word of God, uh, as it's applied to the heart by the Holy Spirit, the elect are brought to faith and churches are established in this world. That, of course, is what Jesus intended. That's what He commanded us just before He ascended into heaven. What's the duty? What's the work? What's the purpose of the church of Jesus Christ? What are we supposed to be doing while we wait for Him to return? Well, the Lord Himself told us in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. 
And, and we've seen this happen over and over down through the history in country after country and continent after continent as the Gospel has gone out to the four corners of the earth. And these churches, churches that are established by Christ through His followers, they are light bearers. Or, or better we could say they're lampstands, right? That's what we see them in the book of Revelation. They are lights shining brightly in the midst of a world of darkness. And these churches are not alone, as we saw at the very beginning in the first three chapters of Revelation. They're not alone because why? Because Jesus walks in the midst of the churches, in the midst of His lampstands. He's, he's watching over them. He's protecting them. He's leading them. He's guiding them. And He's even correcting them. But what often happens... What often follows the establishment of churches for the kingdom of Jesus in this world? What happens when, when people are brought out of the darkness and they're brought into the light? Well, again and again, we see that God's people, we see Christ's churches are persecuted. They're troubled by this world. They're subjected to all sorts of trials and afflictions that we've already seen back in chapters 4-7. through seven. Because it's just as Jesus said it would be in, in John 16.33. These things I've spoken to you that in me you may have peace. That's the good news, right? That's what's ours in Christ. We have peace with God. But He goes on. In the world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. And that's what we're seeing playing out here, isn't it? The Apostle Paul tells us not, uh, you know, much the very same thing, except he also tells us what he went through. He tells us of his own experience in 2 Timothy, which is really the last book that he wrote. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. We, we've quoted verse 12 many times, but listen to the context here. But you have carefully followed my doctrine. He's talking to Timothy. Manner of life, purpose, faith, long suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. That is, when he was on his missionary journeys, right? What persecutions I endured. And out of them all, the Lord delivered me. And then you have those familiar words in verse 12. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But then he also says more. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And so the way of the church of Jesus Christ in this world is the way of the cross. It's the way of suffering as we follow in the footsteps of our blessed Savior. Glory is going to follow. That's what we're looking forward to. An unbelievable glory that will be ours in eternity. But for now, it comes through the cross. The path of suffering. And not only does the Lord promise us that He will be with us through all that comes our way as we live in this fallen world, but the Lord also promises that He will bring His judgment on this world. This world that persecutes His church. That tortures and murders His people. As we've already seen back in chapters 8-11. through 11. And so these judgments of God, they're well recorded for us in the Word of God and in the history of the church. Uh, those judgments that have come upon those who have persecuted God's loved ones. But you know, it seems like these judgments fail again and again to move mankind to repentance. The, the message of the Gospel so often just seems to fall on deaf ears. 
And the reason, as we've seen in chapters 12 through 14, is because the conflict between the church and the world it really points us to a much deeper, a much more fundamental warfare that's going on. The warfare between Christ and Satan. The great war that's going on between the Lamb and the dragon. It's, it's a battle that began all the way back in the garden with the fall of Adam and Eve into sin when the Lord declared war on the seed of the serpent. And He promised redemption. He promised salvation in its fullness through the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. And what follows in the Word of God and what follows in the history of this world is the outplaying of that great war. And the battle continues into our day. And the good news here is that the war is not going to continue on forever and ever. Because the Lord has promised us that the day is coming when this battle will come to an end. The final judgment will come. All will stand before the throne of God. All will give an account of their lives. But before that happens, the wrath of God against the sin of man and the sinfulness of this world will increase in its intensity. And it will be devastating to all who follow the ways of this world, for those who have the mark of the beast, that is, to those who follow and serve and worship the dragon. It will be a terrible judgment. And so my theme for this evening as we move on now to chapter 15 and we begin the fifth vision, the fifth section of the book of the Apocalypse of our Lord Jesus Christ. The theme is the Lord victorious, excuse me, the Lamb victoriously sends forth the bulls of God's final wrath. And we're going to be breaking this down. This is going to cover really the, the two chapters. Chapters 15 and 16 is the fifth vision. And we're going to start here in chapter 15 with the singing of the Lamb's victory in verses 1 through 4. And then the sending of the bowls of wrath in verses 5-8. through eight. We really won't get into the bowls until we get into chapter 16 about what's going to happen. And that will probably take us a, a couple of times to get through. So let me say again, uh, we're at the beginning of the fifth vision. This runs through chapters 15 and 16. And yet when you, when you read the first few verses of chapter 15, it, it looks like there's some questions here that might arise about, well, when is this? And how, how is this going on here? Especially when you look at verses 2 through 4. And really the best explanation of this is that these verses, verses 1 through 4, uh, serve as a conclusion of the previous vision and an introduction to the bowls of God's wrath that we're going to find in chapters 15 and 16. It's almost interlocking in some respects. Uh, it's clear that it's another vision uh, here at the beginning because you read in verse 1 of chapter 15, our first verse uh, of our text tonight, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And this verse is very much like the very first verse of chapter 12 which was the beginning of the fourth vision. So you see this, this connection. There's a similarity here. It, it's clearly an introduction to something new, but it's also kind of giving us a summary statement of what's coming next. And what we see here is the answer uh, to the question about the victory of the Lamb. What, what happens when, when the trumpets that announce God's coming judgment, His wrath, what happens when those trumpets are ignored? What happens when they fail to result in repentance and conversion on the part of mankind? 
I mean, what happens then? Does, does God just kind of give up against the hardness of man's heart? Does He just allow them to go unpunished until the day of His final judgment? Is, is the wrath of God, the cup of His wrath, full? And yet, He has to wait for it to be pulled out, poured out on the final day? Or what? What's going on here? I know that's more than one question, but I think you get the idea here. And the answer to these questions is found in our present vision. And I can put it this way. Whenever in history the wicked fail to repent in answer to the initial and partial manifestation of God's anger and His judgments, there will follow a final outpouring of His wrath. So let me clarify this. And though it's a final outpouring, it's not the complete judgment of God. Because the complete judgment of God is not going to happen until the final day of judgment. Uh, These final plagues, that's what they're called here, are the last plagues, and they leave no more opportunity here for repentance. But And at the same time, we can still be said here that they cover the whole gospel age, just like the previous judgments. When the wicked who have been often warned by the trumpets of God's judgment, that, like we saw back in chapters 8-11, through 11, if they continue to harden their hearts, death finally plunges them into the hands of an angry God. It is, as it says in Hebrews 10.31, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And we see this over and over in the Old Testament where God would pronounce, uh, He would warn, He would sound His trumpet of judgment to the nations or even to His own people. And if they repented, then there would be a delay, right? But often, they did not repent. They continued in their sin. And so the Lord brought His final judgment upon them. Not the final judgment at the end of the age, but the final judgment for them in this age that clearly pointed and pointed rather clearly to that complete and final judgment that is coming at the end of the Gospel age. And so this is the point. Even in this life that we are living now, even before people die, even before the final judgments come, it is really possible for people to harden their hearts and to cross that line where there's no possibility of return. And that's the line that separates God's patience from God's wrath. We see this in in the life of Esau. Remember, he sold his birthright for a morsel of food, for some porridge. And as it says in Hebrews 12, 17, for you know that afterward, when he he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Think about that. We're also told in the book of Exodus about Pharaoh and during these plagues of Egypt, which are, you know, those plagues in Egypt are types of these very plagues that we're going to be looking at next in the next chapter here in the bowls. And we see that not only did God harden Pharaoh's heart, leaving him in his sin, but we're also told that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, which finally led to him and his army, uh, their, their, their final destruction in the Red Sea. Another example is found in Romans 1 where it says three times here that that God gave them up in Romans 1. You know that. God gave them up to their sinfulness which increased their wickedness and which increased their judgment. 
We've also seen this in the woes of, of Revelation chapter 9 that, that in with this declaration about those who are on the earth, these judgments are coming, and it says what? And they did not repent of their murderers or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. And what we're going to see here soon in the next section, uh, again, is a response to the judgment of the bulls. Is in chapter 16, verse 9 says, After the fourth bull, and men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has the power over these plagues, and they, what? They did not repent and give Him glory. And, court, and you have the same thing. Verse 11 of, the, of chapter 16, after the fifth bull, it says the very same thing. They did not repent. And so what we need to remember here is the trumpets are warnings of God's judgment. But the bowls are the God's judgment being poured out. They are judgment poured out more than a warning. They are His judgment. But on whom? On whom are the bowls of God's wrath poured out? It's those whom we met in the last vision. That is, those who worship the dragon. Those who follow the beast and the false prophet and the harlot Babylon. Those who have His mark. And this pouring out, as I said, it's not restricted to the end of the age. It, it really runs parallel with the trumpets. And there are many similarities between the trumpets and the bowls. And that makes it clear that they, they really cover the same period of time. And, and there are several reasons for saying this. Not only are there similarities between the trumpets and the bulls, but the, this vision of the bulls ends just like the previous visions with the final judgment scene. Here we're going to find it in chapter 16, verses 15 through 21. It comes to the final judgment. But we saw this previously at the end of chapter 7 and at the end of chapter 11, the final judgment. It's also made clear that in chapter 15, it begins just like chapter 12 did. It's, it's really pointing us back to the same time frame that begins at Christ's birth and ends at His second coming. Another point is that the bulls are poured on those who have the mark of the beast. And remember, this mark is not something that only appears at the end of time, at the end of the age. This mark is on their forehead. It's in their thinking. It's in their mindset. It's on their right hand. That is, it's in their actions and in their life. And this mark describes all those who follow the dragon down through history, not just a certain group at the end of the age. All those who follow the dragon. They have this mark, a mindset and a lifestyle, and they follow the dragon and they persecute God's people and reject Christ. And then finally, it's clear, as you read chapters 15 and 16 of this fifth vision, that the forces of evil are the very same forces that we encountered in the fourth vision. So we're going over the same uh, 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 time period again. Who are, the, who are the forces, the evil forces here? The dragon, the beast out of the sea, and the beast of the earth. We, we read that in chapter 16, verse 13. And I saw three unclean spirits like fog, frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. And yet, after saying all of that, we still need to realize that these bowls also have a special significance to the last day. Yes, they cover the whole period between Christ's comings, the first and second, but they also point 
emphatically to the final judgment. They're in this present age, but they speak of that day, that final day that is yet to come, when God will pour out the fierceness and the fullness of His wrath on the wicked. The earth will be harvested, and the winepress of God's wrath will flow with blood. It will be a terrible day. Now, what I'd like to do is spend the rest of this first point just really concentrating on verses 2 through 4. Because here we see the victory of the Lamb. His victory on our behalf. That there is much here in verses 2 through 4 to comfort us, to encourage us as we live in this portion, our portion of the Gospel age. So let me read verses 2 through 4 again. John says, And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, And those who have the victory over the beast, over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true, excuse me, just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. Now, we might think that this is speaking of what's going on at the same time that the bowls are being poured out on the earth. That's, that is on those who have the mark of the beast and who worship his image. But really, this is a picture of the church triumphant again. The church in heaven enjoying the, the fullness of our salvation in Christ. Just as we saw back at the beginning of chapter 14, even though the rest of the chapter went back to just before the, the time of the final judgment. And here we are introduced to the seven angels of the seven last plagues. That's verse 1. But then we're given this picture, another picture of the church in glory. The church triumphant. So, so why does the storyline kind of bounce around like that? Well, here we have to remember that these visions are not given in a perfect chronological order for us so we can figure out the details of when these things are happening. But the order is given to us to remind us, to, to comfort us, to encourage us that God is going to deliver His people graciously and gloriously and that He's going to judge the wicked severely and justly. And so before we're given the contents of the bowls of God's wrath, before we're told about the future that awaits the wicked, we are given a reminder of the future that awaits us in Christ. A future that's truly gracious and glorious. A future that is comforting to us in our times of trial. So so John, he he sees this sea of glass that's mingled with fire. The sea of glass mingled with fire, it symbolizes God's transparent righteousness as it's revealed in the judgments of the wicked. It's perfect justice. It's fire, judgment, but it's also uh, a sea of glass, meaning it's transparent. It's clearly pure, righteous judgment from God. In fact, it's just what the people sing here, isn't it? Just and true are your ways, O Lord. And on the sea of glass stands this victorious multitude, right? A a multitude that no one can number. It's the church in glory, the church in victory. And they're playing harps, the harps of God. They're not playing their own harps. They're playing the harps that God gave them. 
By standing on the sea, it's clear that the multitude has been involved in the battle against the beast of the sea. There's kind of a connection here with the previous beast, right? And they have fought uh, in the midst of an unbelieving world. And then by that, they've given their fiery and faithful, true, righteous testimony. You might remember, they should remind us of the, of the two witnesses. Remember? The church back in chapter 11. And what are these people doing? What, what is the church in glory doing? They're singing. Because God's people sing. It's what we're supposed to do. Even now in this world, we, we are to sing to the Lord. We're to blend our voices with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're to sing for all we're worth. As we prepare for that day when we will sing with rapture of the glories that will follow. And we're even told, what do they sing here? They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Now, now the point here is not to, to lift Moses up to the level of Christ. We're told he's the servant of God. He's, he's a type of Christ. He was the mediator of the Old Covenant. But he's not something greater than that in himself. But you see, there's the song of Moses. What does that do? When you talk about the song of Moses, it points us back to Exodus 15, which we read. In case we haven't figured it out, even from that, that word, this was the announcement of the plagues. Right? That's how this starts. And so that makes it easy to see that the, the fifth vision really kind of takes its cue from the book of Exodus and from the plagues and the destruction of Pharaoh and his army. And so just like Israel of old stood on the seashore and they sang the song of Moses, so we will sing the same song of deliverance that is ours through the Lamb of God when He defeats all of our enemies, the dragon and all of his armies. The people in Moses' day sang of the victory of God for them in Exodus 15. I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider He has thrown into the sea. But you see, really, that's, that's just a prelude to what we will sing on that great and final day of Christ's victory when He destroys all of our enemies. Beloved people of God, just as Israel of old described its victory to God to uh, this so too, we're going to see this, by this victorious company of the redeemed in Christ. What do they do? They, they proclaim loudly that their God, our God, is the one, the only one, who has granted triumph to His people over their enemies. That it's all of God's grace, all of His mercy to us in Christ. Even the harps, we're told, belong to God. Harps of victory, which, which speak He's given to us because of His triumph, which we share in. He's given them to us because we share in the victory of His great battle of the ages, the war of the universe. And what will we praise God for at that time? What are we going to sing about? We are going to sing about God's glorious works of judgment. And we're going to sing about God's, God's wondrous way of salvation in Christ. Because the reality is, it looked like everything was against us. That you and I were without hope and without God in this wicked world. We did not have a friend or a helper because of our sin and sinfulness. And the Lord God has come to our rescue. He's come to help us. He's come to our defense. And He's not only opened the way to Himself, but He has worked mightily in us, powerfully in us, graciously and gloriously in us to change the leopard's spots. 
to take out the heart of stone, to give us a heart of flesh, a heart that is alive toward God. The great and marvelous works of God are His salvation to us in His Son. And that's what we're going to sing about for all eternity. How great Thou art. And let's admit that even this work of God for us is it's just and true. It's holy and good. I mean, when you think about it, God didn't just wink at our sin. He didn't act like it didn't matter. No, He sent His Son. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Our Lord Jesus Christ, He came and He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He lived a life of perfect righteousness. He took our sin upon Himself. He paid the penalty for our sin in full. You see, God's not unjust in forgiving us. Because Christ is our propitiation. He has satisfied the wrath of God that was against us. And therefore, God is just. And the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus. But I want you to notice that in this song, there's not only praise for God, for His gracious salvation, but also for His just and righteous punishment of the wicked. That here is a God to be feared. Here is the God who will bring all of mankind to accountability before His throne of justice and righteousness and holiness. And all who come will bow before Him. Because in the end, the entire universe will acknowledge the holy, righteous character of God. Have not the wicked been warned by His trumpets of judgment? Have they not hardened themselves in their sin? And is it not clear that the fault is entirely their own? And so what's going to happen to them? After seeing the praise of God by His people for His just ways, a reminder given to us to remind us what awaits us in glory, we now return to the punishment of the wicked. The last part of our text tonight is really a further introduction to chapter 16, a further introduction to the bowls of God's wrath that are about to be poured out on the wicked of the earth, those who have rejected the Lord, those who have embraced the dragon. Uh, the previous verses not only show us the picture of God's people as they're in glory, verses 2-4, through four, and they make it clear here that the final plagues are righteous in every respect, Indeed, they are so transparently righteous that the church triumphant will praise God because of His just punishments, punishments which He has faithfully and righteously inflicted upon the unrepentant, that is, on those who refuse to turn from their sins and turn to Him for mercy and grace. And we have come to the fullness of God's wrath. So now the Apostle John, he, he, he leaves the triumphant multitude of the future, returns to this present dispensation of the Gospel age. And what does the Apostle John see here? We're told that the sanctuary of the tabernacle of the testimony is open. Verse 5, After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open. So this is speaking of the heavenly sanctuary, the heavenly tabernacle, which contains the Ark of the Covenant. And that Ark contains the testimony. That is, a copy of the law of God. 
which Moses had placed in the Ark of the Covenant. The sanctuary is open. The tabernacle is open. And the reason for this is so that we might understand that the wrath, which is about to be revealed, which is about to be poured out upon the earth, is truly the wrath of God. That it is sent from Him. It comes directly from Him. Verse 6, And out of the temple came the seven angels having the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, and having their chests girded with golden bands. Out of the open sanctuary, we're told the seven angels proceed. Uh, They come from the very presence of God, given this great and terrible task that they are to perform, to pour out these bowls. And though they don't receive the bowls, actually until verse 7, the phrase, they're having the seven plagues, most likely refers to the fact that they have the authority over these plagues. God has given them the authority. They have come from the throne room of God. They're robed in pure, dazzling linen. Uh, their chests encircled with golden bands. Um, this Actually, the description of the seven angels, is, it's somewhat similar to the one of Christ back in chapter 1, if you remember. And yet, what that, that should be understood to mean that they're also representatives of Christ. Of the Lamb as well. This is the wrath of the Lamb as well as the wrath of God. Verse 7. Then one of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. So remember the the four living creatures that were around the throne that we met back in chapter 4? Well, one of them places into the hands of each one of these angels a bowl. The bowls are made of gold because they're used in the service of God. Just as many of the utensils uh, that were used in the tabernacle were made of gold. They're full to indicate the fierceness the, the pure character of God's wrath. It is full. And it is an everlasting wrath that now proceeds from the ever-living God. Verse 8, the last verse of our text tonight. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. The sanctuary is filled with smoke. This is a symbol of God's presence, a symbol of the full and thorough operation of God's holy and righteous anger. We we have actually uh, many pictures of this in other places in the Word of God. Psalm 18 speaks of God's hearing the cry of His people. And as He hears their cry, it describes Him in this way. In Psalm 18, verses 6-8, through In my distress I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from His temple, and my cry came before Him even to His ears. What did God do? Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of the hills also quaked and were shaken because He was angry. Smoke went up from His nostrils, devouring fire from His mouth. Coals were kindled by it. When God's people cry, God hears. And the Lord here in our text is angry as He defends His people, as He punishes those who've tormented and persecuted and murdered them. It's the fire of His wrath. I use that similar picture for our call to worship tonight in Isaiah chapter 6. I'm just going to read a little portion of it here. Verses 3-5. through With the seraphim, one cries to another and said, Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And then here's the description. The posts of the door were shaken by the voice of Him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. And what's the prophet? How does he react? It's interesting to me that the man who spoke God's Word 
is most concerned about his lips, isn't he? That they were unclean. The man who spoke the Word of God. So I said, woe is me, for I am undone because I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It is a fearful thing, even for God's people, to see the Lord God of heaven and earth in His anger. As it says in Psalm 76, verse 7, You yourself are to be feared. And who may stand in your presence when once you are angry? In fact, the psalmist goes on to speak of what we're looking at here uh, in Revelation in verses 8 and 9 of Psalm 76. You caused judgment to be heard from heaven. The earth feared and was still when God arose to judgment to deliver all the oppressed of the earth. God's rising in judgment is for the sake of His people. Both of those things go together. I mean, what is going to happen at the end of the age? Judgment and redemption. And what do we learn from the fact that no one could enter the sanctuary during the time of the outpouring of the bowls of God's wrath? Now, this is why they really point us to the end. Because uh, the reason why no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels should be finished is because intercession is no longer possible. God has, in His anger, shut up His tender mercies, as it says in Psalm 77.9. Or as Jesus put it in some of His parables about His coming again, the door is shut. And no one's allowed in. Or we could say the wicked, those not ready for His return, they are cast out where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, beloved, I, I don't want to end uh, on such a hard note tonight. But, but it is clear here that the judgments of God will one day fall on this world and they will come in great finality. You know, many people today are living with no regard to the future that's coming. And they don't think it even matters. There are many others who are living like they got their ticket punched for heaven, right? And so they can live any way they want. But we need to remember here that the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ is not only written to comfort us and to encourage us as Christians, even though the whole world may be set against us, it's also written to do this. To remind us that we need to persevere in our faith and in our lives to the end. Yes, God promises that He will finish the work that He has started in us. But He also commands us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And to make our calling and election sure as we live for Him each day. One day the Lord is going to return. One day He's going to bring His final, complete, total judgment on the world of sinners. And it will all come to an end. And if you and I want to be among those who sing the praises of our God and Savior as He pours out His judgment on the wicked, then we better make sure that we're singing those praises today. That we're living for Him today. Because you see, it's only for those who are truly in Christ who can say that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And all God's people said, Amen.